Good morning. It's good to be here with you today as we take a few moments to consider what the Lord might have to say to us. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, the prophet Isaiah tells us that your word never returns void. That is a promise. Your word shall not return void because it always accomplishes what you have sent it out to do. And so today, as we submit ourselves under the sound of your word, I pray, just as my prayer all week long has been, that you would do it, Lord. That you would do what only you can do. So may your word go forth in power to accomplish the purposes you have set it out to do. Water these fields, nourish these souls, bring the dead things in our lives to life and cause us to bear fruit like we never have before. This we ask in the name that is above every name, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray all things, amen. Spend any amount of time doing anything of meaning, and it's likely that you've heard at least one person complain about it. Am I right? At least one complaint. Can't live a second doing anything at all without there being some complaint that surfaces about some way that we could have done it better or could have done it differently or could have done it more like so-and-so or could have done it less like you did, right? I remember a particular conversation. A visitor had come to visit a church that uh, I had been pastoring at the time, and he asked if we could go out to lunch. Initially, I was delighted. Because typically, when somebody wants to grab lunch with the preacher after the service, it's to tell them all of the wonderful things that they experienced that morning, right? <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> As I soon discovered, that was not the purpose of this meeting. No, for the next 60 minutes, this individual proceeded to relay to me all of the things that went horribly wrong. The volume of the songs, the kinds of songs that we sang, the message that I preached, on and on it went. And when the check finally came, and I'm telling you, it couldn't come soon enough, he looked to me and pushed the bill my way, expecting me to pay for it. As if the last hour of complaining wasn't payment enough. And I wish I could tell you this was a one-time thing. Have you ever had somebody complain to you before? Maybe it's in a marriage. Your spouse reminding, oh, I heard some groans on that one. <laughs> Spouse complaining, that's not the way you do this. That's not the way you wash that. That's not the way you parent. Maybe it's in a family situation. Your kid reminding you yet again that they don't like what you've served them for dinner. Or maybe it's a parent who's dogging on you again about cleaning your room or get a life or whatever it might be. Maybe it's school, college, a group project, right? You put in all of this effort and then you see it torn to shreds by your peers. Or maybe it's your job. You do this grand gesture, right? Some new idea, some initiative that certainly no one's going to find any fault with until, wouldn't you know it, scathing email after another comes your way and you wish for nothing else but to crawl into a deep, dark hole and just die. Whether it's church and music ministry, 
teaching or education, family, serving, goodness, even mowing the lawn, we've all experienced the nagging nuisance of complaining before, haven't we? So we're going to talk about complaining today. And you're probably expecting a message on how complaining is bad and how all good Christian boys and girls do not complain, right? Wrong. No, today we're going to discover the power of complaining and in particular, the life-transforming, church-growing power that exists when we complain and rightly respond to the complaints as they arise in our lives. Confused? I'll show you what I mean. Turn in your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 6, please. Acts chapter 6, we'll be working our way through the first seven verses of this chapter. Once more, Acts chapter 6, starting now with verse 1. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, and we'll stop right there. Some context. Jesus has ascended to heaven He sent the Holy Spirit to fill and empower his followers to make known his salvation through all the world, starting in Jerusalem. And so far, we've seen in the book of Acts that thousands have come to Jesus. There's this growing excitement in the city, a a buzz of momentum. But as we know, gather any number of people together in a room and something else is bound to show up. Verse 1 continues. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. Here it is, complaining, complaining. But before we can understand the complaint, we need to understand the people who are represented here. See, although this is in Jerusalem, there are two distinct people groups present in the story. Luke calls them the Hebrews and the Hellenists. The Hebrews were your typical Hebrew-speaking Jewish people. Uh, The the Hellenists, though, were Greek-speaking Jews who were Jews by blood and heritage but were dispersed for one reason or another and grew up in surrounding Greek-speaking cities. And so now, for some reason, they've come back to Jerusalem and they start coming to faith in Jesus, but because of the time that they spent away from Jerusalem, these Greek-speaking Jews, the Hellenists, they're not really perceived as pure, so to speak. They're mudbloods for all you Harry Potter fans. The Hebrews saw the Hellenists as out of touch with the native rhythms and practices, most notably because they read and learned from the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament, rather than the Hebrew and Aramaic. What I guess I'm saying is this isn't the first time in a church ever disagreed on what Bible translation you use, right? We could literally say, that already the church is being faced with racial and cultural tensions. And so, what's the complaint? Verse 1 again. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. 
So apparently there's a daily distribution of food going out to local widows, food pantries, uh, soup kitchens, mercy ministries. These are not some new glamorous social justice initiative. It's literally only chapter six in the life of the church in Acts. And already the church is spearheading the charge on serving the needs of others, amen? But for some reason, we find out that the Hellenists, these Greek-speaking widows, are being neglected in the distribution. Some translations go so far as to say they're being discriminated against. So the word is going out, the gospel's going out, disciples are being made, the church is growing, and yet there's a complaint. Somebody is being left out. Now, far as I can tell, when it comes to complaining, there's typically two approaches. Either we suppress the complaining and pretend there's nothing wrong, or we just listen to every possible squeaky wheel and try to deal with it ourselves. But it turns out there's a third way. Look how they respond, verse two. And the 12 apostles, that is, summoned the full number of the disciples. So all the Christians gather together and they say, look, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Real quick, let me tell you what this doesn't mean. Some pastors love to quote this verse to qualify their own laziness. As if their sole task in ministry is just to sit in a quiet place and read the Bible and pray and preach, but like serving tables is beneath them. And I'm telling you that cannot be farther from the truth. Consider this. There was a daily distribution already taking place. The problem isn't that widows aren't being served but that as the gospel is going out and more are coming to faith, the need has grown so great that it requires more people to get involved in serving to meet the needs. There's already a daily distribution in place and I bet you those apostles were there. After all, how can you neglect someone in the daily distribution if you're not already distributing daily, right? Here's the brilliance of the apostles. They've taken inventory of the complaint. They've seen the importance of the work that has yet to be done, but they've equally taken stock that they themselves are maxed out time-wise. To add something more to their plate will shove something else aside that needs to be on their plate. So what they've decided is, you know what, you're right, something must be done, but we're swamped already with everything on our list. We need to meet the need you've pointed out but we're gonna need some help. That's the solution. So they continue in verse three to say this, therefore brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Pumba, just kidding, but, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. The apostles have just listened to the complaint, they've gathered the whole church together. So they've invited the congregation to select from among themselves who these seven people of good character and reputation are for this work. But here's what I love. I don't know if you saw it in the verse before. He says, pick out from among you. Pick out from among you. 
So the apostles point out, you're right about the complaint. Now, select from among yourselves who's going to do the work. And as if to confirm that these were Hellenists who were being raised up for this task of mission work as leaders, Luke gives us the names of the seven. All seven, Stephen, Philip, all of them are actually Greek names, not Hebrew names. It came from among the people who were being neglected. Here's some great leadership advice. When someone comes to you with a problem, don't resolve it. Resource it. Don't resolve the problem yourself, as tempted as you might be to do it because it's quicker, because you know how to do it, whatever. Instead, offer the solution back with an opportunity to do the work yourself, to solve it themselves by resourcing them with whatever training or financial resource or whatever is necessary to pull off the task. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 speak to this when it says, so Christ gave himself the apostles, the prophets, the, uh, uh, sorry, Christ himself gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to do the work of, no, it doesn't say to do the work. It says to equip the people for the works of service and ministry so that the body of Christ would be built up. If we want to see the body of Christ built up, We're not supposed to do the work ourselves. We're supposed to equip. Leaders are supposed to equip for the work. Leaders, our task is not to resolve, but to resource, to give tools, to provide means, to equip. Let's not do it ourselves, but and certainly we don't want to abandon either, but we need to come alongside and equip for the work. Now on the flip side, if we're the one coming with the complaint, it's the same thing. Your complaints will often be better received when you offer a possible solution or at least a readiness to jump in and get your hands dirty. I've often found that when God gives us eyes to see a need, he's given us hands to meet that need too. So what has God given you eyes to see and a mouth to speak about? Chances are he wants you to be part of the solution. So the church has gathered together. They've named the seven from among themselves who are going to spearhead this new endeavor. And then verse six tells us, these they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. I want us to notice something really important here. They're called to serve tables, right? To serve tables. Yet notice the apostles are praying over them and laying hands on them, which we see later in Acts is a sign for commissioning new missionary work. Like we see this in Acts chapter 13, when they lay hands on Paul and Barnabas to commission them for their missionary journeys. But they're just waiting tables, right? What's the big deal? What's so special about that? Well, here's what we need to get into our minds. There is no small work in the kingdom of God. Take that in. Let that encourage your soul. There is no small work in the kingdom of God. Why else would there be qualifications of character in verse 3? Did you catch that? 
Like the apostles, they tell them to pick out seven of good reputation who are full of the spirit and of wisdom to be appointed by the apostles to this duty with praying and laying on of hands. These qualities, uh, they mirror what the apostle Paul will later write about for elders and deacons in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, uh, who similarly would be well thought of by outsiders. That's reputation who similarly are worthy of respect, level-headed, trustworthy in all things. That's the evidence of the spirit and of wisdom. Like we, we need to see why would character qualifications be needed just to wait tables? Well, it's because there is no small work in the kingdom of God. No small work. We are all called to be witnesses for Christ. To follow Jesus is to represent Jesus. Whether you're running sound or preaching a sermon or preparing the coffee or writing thank you cards to healthcare workers, there is no small work in the kingdom of God. The question isn't why are there character qualifications for this work? The better question is why don't we expect the same qualities of character today? That's the better question. Now, I'm not saying that in a legalistic way. We all fall short. I get that. But we need to grasp the reality that to follow Jesus is to represent Jesus. Everything we do represents or doesn't represent all that he is. You've heard it said, your life might be the only Bible someone ever reads. I want to craft that a little bit more pointedly. Your life, my life, may be the very reason someone chooses to believe in Jesus or not. So, a complaint is aired. The church responds as it does. Now, what is the result? Acts 6, verse 7 tells us, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Notice in verse one, it said the disciples were increasing in number, but verse seven says, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. What could move them from increasing to multiplying from growth by addition to growth by multiplication, from influential growth to exponential growth. This is the power of complaining, specifically when we learn to rightly respond to the complaints as they arise, because spoiler alert, complaints will arise. And then verse 7 tells us that as the word of God continued to increase, a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now this is staggering. See, the priests who are the very same people who just rejected Jesus in Luke, they're now showing up and they're coming to Christ in droves. Like what changed? Well, the first century historian Josephus speaks to this when he writes about a particular tithe that was set apart by the, the, the Jewish priests for the distribution of such things that are lacking to widowed women 
Isn't that interesting? It turns out that it was a priestly duty to serve the widows. And now the priests are watching with their own two eyes as this church on the margins shows up and they take up the cause. And something begins to shift in the heart of the priests. A similar observation is made in the fourth century. The world leader at the time, Roman Emperor Julian, he tries to resurrect paganism and he's trying to put a stop to Christianity. All of this is that he's building better temples. He's trying to pull off better services, uh, get better, you know, uh, priestesses in place, all this kind of stuff. And yet it never takes off. And Christianity, as we know, continues to spread. Why is that? Well, here's what he has to say about it. He says, nothing has contributed to the progress of the superstitions of these Christians as their kindness to strangers. They provide not only for their own poor, the Christian poor, but they provide for all of our poor as well. Through their willingness to engage in word and deed ministry collectively, by not letting go of either side, but making sure that the word goes out and that they love out loud, People can't help but take notice, including the priests who once rejected Jesus. And I cannot help but make this connection. With the rise of atheism and humanism and secularism in our day, many of whom are what has been called de-churched, De-churched, meaning they grew up in and around the church, but have willfully chosen to step away and have in turn rejected Jesus. I cannot help but wonder if they saw the church at work, would they still believe? If they saw the church beating them at their own game of serving the needs of others, would they still believe? If they saw the church willing to take up the cries of justice and life, would they believe? Is it at least possible that the reason they have chosen to reject Jesus is because we are unable to reflect Jesus well? Is the world's rejection of Christ simply hinged on the church's poor reflection of Christ? Because listen, we live in the age of complaining, don't we? I cannot think of a better title for today's day than the age of complaining. But how we respond to the complaints that arise as they do has a lot to say with whether the church is going to grow in the 21st century as theirs did in the first, or if we're going to find ourselves becoming more and more irrelevant to a world that's increasingly choosing to reject Jesus. How can we learn to respond to the complaints around us as they did and similarly watch God work mightily throughout our world by bringing many to himself. There are two pieces that jump out of our text and I wanna ask them in the form of a question. First, am I willing to listen? Am I willing to listen? One of the key reasons I've seen friends of mine leave the church and faith in droves has been due to the church's unwillingness to engage in the conversation. A doubt gets brought up, a concern gets voiced, and immediately it gets shut down. 
usually some blanket, cliche, Christianese kind of statement to silence others into submission. If we as a church are unwilling to listen, is it any wonder others are unwilling to stick around just for their voice to fall on deaf ears? When I was 13, I broke my leg. Actually broke it twice in the same year, but that's a whole other story. But I remember having to get it checked out. And the doctor asked me, on a scale of one to 10, what does the pain feel like when you step on it? Now in healthcare, pain is what the patient says pain is. Your 10 may not be the same as someone else's 10, but it's still a 10 nonetheless to you. And I'll tell you, I don't care what someone else's 10 is in that moment. When I stepped on my broken leg, it was a 10 to me, right? Well, James tells us to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. And yet more and more today, the church appears to be slow to listen, quick to speak, and even quicker to anger. The next time a complaint comes our way, before we jump right in and squelch it or fix it, can we stay curious long enough to consider what's going on underneath the question? Where's the pain or the heart cry that we need to read between the lines of what's happening here and really catch on to what they're saying and complaining about? Let me give a few explicit examples from recent years. When an African-American football player kneels down during the national anthem, what does a willingness to listen look like there? When a veteran voices frustration over this action, what does a willingness to listen look like there? When we hear of minorities voicing concern about police brutality, what does a willingness to listen look like here? And when we hear a police officer's spouse expressing, expressing apprehension as their significant other enters the line of fire yet another day, what does a willingness to listen look like here? When we hear Americans bemoaning all the liberties of this country slipping away, what does a willingness to listen look like here? And when we hear others decry that these same liberties and freedoms aren't being offered equally to all Americans, what does a willingness to listen look like here? And I recognize that by some of these examples I've given, I may have lost you. But if that's the case, what does that reveal about our ability and willingness to listen? Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. I may not agree with what someone else is claiming a 10 to be on their pain scale, but it's still a 10 to them. So complaints arise. Apostles are willing to listen. Are we? Are we willing to listen? And secondly, Am I willing to adjust? Am I willing to adjust? As we listen to the pains and needs of others, we're undoubtedly going to find that we need to adjust our methods a little bit. Not our message, right? Jesus is Lord. That has not changed. But our methods, the ways that we help others see that Jesus is Lord, that may have to shift. 
So are we to do this through food pantries or, you know, hot dog dinners or spaghetti dinners or is it through new campuses or new church plants or do we continue Sunday services or something else, service projects, like all of that is up for grabs and fill in the blank, right? The how is as adaptable as we can dream up. The methods are malleable so long as the message of God's unrelenting pursuit of humanity and Jesus Christ remains the same. And this gives us incredible freedom, right? We don't serve a model. The model serves us. And when the model no longer serves us, then we can freely abandon it for whatever else God has in mind to better fulfill his purposes in the world around us. A few years ago, Tony Morgan wrote a liberating article called And Instead of Or that I'd like to read for us. Why does it have to be attractional or missional? I've seen lives impacted by both approaches. Why can't it be attractional and missional? Why does it have to be evangelism or discipleship? Christ followers need to be engaged in both. Why can't it be evangelism and discipleship? Why does it have to be teaching from a platform or teaching in the living room? I've been stretched by God's word in both settings. Why can't it be teaching from the platform and the living room? Why does it have to be worship with an amazing production or simple stripped down worship? I've experienced powerful worship in both environments. Why can't it be both? Why does it have to be corporate gatherings or one-to-one relationships? I, I need both to be encouraged and stretched in my faith and my leadership. Why can't we embrace both ways of connecting with others? One of the things that most frustrates me about church blogs is the or approach to writing. I don't get it. Honestly, it's probably one of the reasons why in most cases I prefer to read marketplace blogs. In marketplace writing, if somebody thinks they have the right way of doing something, they just go do it. Then they write about how it went and if it worked or didn't work. But in church writing, if somebody thinks they have the right way of doing something, they write about how other churches are wrong. What if we took the and approach What if we were open to the possibility that more people might be reached if we stopped doing either or and started embracing both and? What if God really designed some churches to be one way for one community or culture and other churches to be another way for another community or culture? My guess, as an example, is it's going to take a completely different type of church to reach the inner city as it's going to take to reach the neighborhoods of Paulding County, Georgia. We spend a lot of time fighting for the or. And I wonder what would happen if we just embraced the and needed to reach our communities. The problem, of course, is that we like to worship our methods. Our preferences are the priority. In fact, we shape religion around our preferences, even if it means sacrificing the broader impact of our ministry. Why help other people when it might make us uncomfortable? I'm more of an and type of guy. I know that frustrates you, It would be a lot easier to dislike me if I didn't agree with you. The problem is that in many circumstances, I think you're right. The difference is I don't think you're always right. And neither am I. The apostles took an and approach to ministry. 
It turns out they learned this from the best. They learned it from Jesus. Jesus, who chose and instead of or when it came time to show up on earth. Because he didn't come as God or as man. He came as God and man. Jesus didn't come filled with grace or truth, but grace and truth. Jesus embodied the and, and it makes sense. He was the best listener because he got close enough to care. Think about this. If the gospel was only about Jesus dying on the cross and rising again, then why didn't he just come as a 33-year-old man for a weekend to do the job and leave? Save himself some time. But no, Jesus came as an infant and spent 30 years in total obscurity. Why? He was listening. He was listening. By stepping down deep into our human experience, he got to know our pains and our woes firsthand. And talk about adjusting. I mean, whether it's speaking through a donkey or a burning bush, whether it's writing on the wall or 10 plagues, what else is the story of the Bible about except God adjusting to reach us? Wouldn't the same be expected of us as his followers? I mean, consider the last 2,000 years and all the adjustments made throughout church history, whether it's the desert fathers and mothers of the 3rd century or a 13th century friar named Francis or a 16th century reformer like Luther, on and on to us today, what kind of adjustments have had to be made in order to reach? Again, not compromising the message, but contextualizing it by adjusting the model. What adjustments do we need to make as a church to see the gospel go out for the next 2,000 years? What adjustments do we need to make individually to see the word go out throughout our lives? This is the invitation that awaits us all. And so I ask, are we willing? Willing to listen. Willing to listen to adjust, like the apostles, like our Lord, like the church, are we willing? The answer to that question determines everything. Pray with me. Father, we come to you now, admitting that there are times that we don't like to listen And there are times that we don't like to adjust or change. But for the sake of your gospel, would you work by the power of your Holy Spirit a willingness to listen and a willingness to adjust? Lord, would that be the language that marks us this week? That we would be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to be angry, that we would hear the cries of those around us, that we would listen to the the pain of others. And instead of trying to prove ourselves, instead of trying to show why we have it right, would we instead, Lord, stoop low and listen? Just as Christ, you did. You stooped low and you listened. And you listened and you listened some more. So that when you were done, you could say, it's finished. And those words have changed our lives forever. Lord, we trust in you. We come to you. I I even acknowledge the pain even in this room right now, Lord. 
Would you minister to each of us and give us the, the boldness to have the conversations we need to have today, that we would respond rightly to the complaints around us, and that ultimately, God, your name would, and fame would be spread throughout this world. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.